looking for the King of Podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world, but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have SignatureHorror.com That's right, SignatureHorror.com Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, alright? I need help! E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my god! Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. You're naughty! This medicine is made for extreme cases of being keel or having extreme depression. Oh, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, Increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my.
Hi, I'm Jeffrey Reddick, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest has certainly had his dreams come true. Obviously, though, he's been grinding it out to make those dreams come true. Let's not forget. But he's possibly best known for creating the Final Destination series as a writer, but he has recently directed Don't Look Back, which is his directorial debut. So let's welcome this guest, Jeffrey Reddick. Hey, thanks so much, both of y'all, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And I know Elena does being a fan of the Final Destination series, but first and foremost... How are you doing with this whole craziness of COVID still and everything as it is on your side, work-related? Um, I mean, I guess the only good thing for me is being somebody who writes a lot. Um, I'm used to spending time by myself. Um, so I think I've been emotionally able to process it a lot better than I would if I had an office job to go to. Um, that being said, it's also very hard to be creative when you are stressing about work, you're stressing about your friends, you're stressing about the world. I mean, this is something that, you know, COVID is affecting everybody and, you know, people out of jobs and kids not being able to go to school. You know, it's just, it's, it's kind of a tough time for the world psyche. So it's, it is overwhelming. So I'm kind of a person that worries enough as it is and so with all this stuff going on it's definitely added to my just worrying a lot so um but i've been able to work um and and thankfully had a couple of uh projects come up which which are in the animation field which is a lot of fun it's a new new arena for me um so i got to stretch some new creative muscles and you know everybody's kind of working at least um, when you're writing and stuff they're everything you know we can do things through zoom uh, so that takes a lot of stress off uh, as far as like, you know, how are you going to make this happen? But, but yeah, you know, I'm just like every, everybody else in the world, like this has certainly been a stressful, you know, this last year has been very stressful um, just because, you know, everybody's suffering. So you can't, it's hard not to take that on, you know, or take that in and acknowledge that or, or feel that. So. Yeah. I can't speak for you, Jeffrey, but uh I know at least two out of the three of us in the room without throwing everything out there publicly has had some way uh, contact with COVID. So yeah, it can be a little bit stressful. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 I've had some friends have it. I had, you know, I've just because I've stayed, you know, pretty much in my uh, place except for going to the store, you know, and, and that's really it <laughs> just going to the store um so i've become you know quite a bit of a homebody uh you mentioned that with the animation stuff and all and you're having to stretch your uh, creative muscles per se how mm-hmm. much different is that compared to when you're writing for say television and or film with live action you know what it's some of the process is the same, you know, like you, you, you meet with the writers, you kind of break out, you know, a season and then start laying out the episodes. But I think the biggest difference is with animation, especially this is younger animation, like YA animation. Um, you know, you just, you have to be obviously mindful of, of what you're saying, but you also want to kind of make sure that what you're doing is going to be entertaining, you know, younger kids, but also their parents. Um, so it's kind of like you, you want to make sure you're sending the right message to kids. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be like, Hey, let's have kids want to run around with chainsaws and solve their problems. Um, so you're, 
you're trying to kind of set the right tone and message for for the stories that you're doing but you're also there are limitations in animation i mean you can create whatever world you want but when you're working on a series you know they have to build the characters and the sets and anytime a character changes outfits it's like uh you know it's a you don't want to have them changing too much you know you can slap a different outfit on them but then it has to be functional for what they're doing um you don't want to create too many new characters so you want to try to have characters that can kind of be redressed and reused throughout the series. Whereas in TV, you have a lot more flexibility about just bringing in a new extras, you know, like in, in animation, like if you build a hundred people to populate a village, then those people will later on be redressed to be soldiers. And you know what I'm saying? Like they'll, they'll use the same characters and just put different outfits on them and things like that. So you'd have to be mindful of that. Um, and I guess the other big thing is um, the animators are very involved in the creative process. Like they come on very early. Um, so they're part of the creative team while you're writing. Whereas like in television or film, you write stuff and then you have your set designers and your costume people and your prop people work on stuff. So, you know, I, it's been my experience so far um, on the couple of things I worked on that the animators are, you know, are brought in a lot earlier in the process. Makes sense. But let's go ahead and start with Don't Look Back. Came out later last year and it was yeah. your directorial debut. Yeah. So what was it like for you putting a different hat on? Because obviously most of the fans know you for the writing side of things. You know, directing is a whole different ball cap to put on there. Yeah. And it's funny because I've been on, I've been very fortunate to be on the sets of most of my films in the past. Um, so I got to, and I know a lot of directors, so I had a lot of brains that I got to pick. Um, the biggest, the big, well, one thing is you, until you actually do it, I had directed a short before, but it's a, it is a lot different than a feature. Um, and so you learn all the stuff you don't know Um when you when you when you actually do it um i think the biggest difference is you know just kind of the way the business has evolved over the years it's so funny because like in feature films like the writer is kind of like once you sold a script it's a lot of times it's like see ya <laughs> see you at the premiere and then that's it you're you're just out of the picture um in television the, the writers are like the top of the food chain so the directors are actually coming in and working to service the script Whereas in films, it's like you sell the script and then people can do whatever they want with it. Um, so I'm used to being on set as a writer and being very mindful that it's not when I'm on set as a writer, it's not my place to like, you know, unless I unless the director asked me or we're ta we've talked before, which we usually happens. But once I go to set, like I'm always quiet. Like I never, I mean, I'm friendly, but I never, I made the mistake once of having a, an actor asked me, you know, what I meant when I wrote a character a certain way with this scene. Um, and the actor asked me very innocently, like, what, what, what were you thinking? And I was like, oh, this, this, and this. And then I found out later that this particular actor and the director were butting heads about the character. So the actor went back to the director and was like, well, I talked to Jeffrey and he said he wrote this. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, oh. it brings you into the middle of yeah. what's going on there. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm very careful when I visit sets just to be there to learn and observe. So to actually be on set as a director um, was great, but there was still that part of me because I'm very, very collaborative. So um, it was balancing my collaborative nature with, you know, I'm, I'm in charge here. Like everybody on set is looking at me to kind of guide this ship and they were looking at me for direction. So it was balancing that collaborative side of myself with being the captain. Well, Elena's having uh, tech issues, but uh, she was curious to know as the director, would it be mm -hmm. safe to, she does some acting is starting to get into it, but would it be safe to say that the director sets the tone? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I, I, I've seen that on every set uh, that I've been on. Uh, yes the directors absolutely set the tone so if you have like 
you know, if you have a very type A personality, like where everything has to be regimented in their way, you'll know that, um, you know, I, I brought everybody together because this is important to me, you know, I brought everybody together the first day just to a love to know how much I appreciated them all being there, but B that this was like a safe set for me. Like, so if I said, if anybody, you know, if anybody feels like uncomfortable, if they hear any, you know, sexist or racist or homophobic kind of stuff going on, I said, I want you not to worry about going to the producers. I want you to come to me directly, which is not usually the chain of command because usually if there's a problem, you're supposed to talk to the producer and the producer talks to the director. But I know people are often afraid to speak up if they feel uncomfortable on, on a set because they're afraid, you know, that they'll, and I, and I, so I just made it very clear that I would not tolerate any of that shit on my set um, on the first day. And I think that that really set the tone for the whole production. Um, Elena, can you, uh, Bring from an acting perspective for the few projects you've done so far, Jeffrey's been talking about as far as setting a tone for the actors. Oh yeah, like um, I, as as you said, like I'm only kind of getting started out, but from the experiences that I have, like it's it's very inclusive. Uh, I've never felt unsafe. Like if I wanted to say something or ask, um, I'd always ask the director. Like, and that's kind of supposed to be their job anyway. It's like they're supposed to kind of show you what they want to tell and it's your job to to tell it. But like, I've never had a negative experience where it's like, it's um, they, it's like, what was Jeffrey trying to say? It's like, it, they see it a certain way and it has to be a certain way. Like I, I've been really lucky that I've had some sort of freedom to kind of improv certain situations and I can totally understand where he's coming from with the environment that if there's like any negativity then of course like you'd want to have someone to um stand up for you <laughs> and now my cat is like following me around <laughs> i know my my cats yeah, are I, hiding I somewhere <laughs> and, and and you know and every set is different so i i, I definitely have heard nightmare stories of sets where you know directors yell and scream and throw things and you know for me that's i did that's not my style and I you know I wouldn't personally you know if I ever work with anybody who's like that I just never work with them again you know because I'm like life's too short life's too short (laughs) we were talking about that before you came on about the stressors of certain things uh what we're looking to do down the line but with don't look back you seem to walk a line between supernatural thriller and grounded horror was mm-hmm. this a bold choice and do you think it paid off um the funny thing is it was definitely it was a definite choice to make um and i knew i knew that it would be hard because I, you know i'm a lifelong horror fan and you know i've seen every horror film and every thriller that comes out and um you know, the big, I know when people try to mix genres or because the whole nature of the film is, you don't know if it's supernatural or a real killer until the end. So I knew I couldn't have any super fantastic, like final destination kind of death scenes. And I couldn't show somebody stabbing somebody to death with a knife. So in this film, we end up with a lot of the aftermath. And I knew that it was going to be a, a, a tricky thing to do. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the movie, but I I definitely know that it was marketed as more of a straight up horror film. So it seems like most of the people who have not liked it have been disappointed because they were expecting like final destination kind of gore and, and, and bloody death scenes. And and I have, I have other movies that I want to do with that in it. So I'm I'm definitely going to bring in some blood and gore people's ways, some really fun stuff. But for this one, I, I wanted to do something different because I thought the, story of the of the movie and the idea of people not helping people in need you know that kind of that message and kind of the karmic kind of overtones were were more important to the story and you know it's interesting when you do a movie like this i think if you know we've gotten a lot of good responses we've gotten some some negative ones as as is always the case with the movie um but you know i think for if it's not a straight up horror movie you and more of a thriller, you, you know, that's when you really have to rely on having like big names in your cast to bring people out to watch it. Cause if it's not a, 
because at horror movie you can like you can show some of the bloody or some, the, some of the scary almost bloody death scenes um in the trailer and people are like oh we'll go see that in our movie we have some s- suspense scenes but it's more of a mystery so um but yeah i was really happy with with how it turned out um and again i learned a lot as a director just doing it you know especially on an indie kind of level um so that kind of i think prepared me to move on to some you know bigger budget things um i like i said i i do love my straight up horror but um i wanted my the, the first one i directed to be a little bit i didn't want it to be what was necessarily expected of me i wanted it to be something a little more um a little just a little more thought provoking as opposed to like just straight up horror which can obviously still be thought provoking but um i wanted to kind of is pretty I, i'm trying not to sound pretentious i just wanted to say something with my first film that i directed um as opposed to just like making it really a really fun like thrilling horror ride but i do before we uh go to your other well-known project i appreciate it that you touched on the toxic side of social media also the hopes of trying to catch a viral moment and stuff was that important to you for this particular project of don't look back to touch on current stuff that we got going on um it it was and the interesting thing is you know we've been trying to get that film produced for quite a while so i was definitely commenting on on how people, you know, when they see something bad or quick to pull out their phone and record it before calling the police. They don't think to call the police first and then report it. Um, and the problem's only gotten worse um, since I first even conceived the project. It's just, you know, it's, it's especially now with, I think, so many people locked down and in this pandemic, people are literally just out there hoping to find something that they can put online and get notice for it. It's it's just one of the, and this isn't even, this is one of the ironic things. Um, but I, I remembered after the, you know, the kind of insurrection at the Capitol here in Washington, um, they interviewed this guy on CNN and he was there with, when the woman unfortunately got shot um, in the Capitol. And I'm watching him on CNN and this was like the very next morning, I think, or maybe even that still afternoon he had footage from it and i'm like wait a minute this guy was in the capitol like right there with all the rioters like what's he doing on tv you know and then of course like a week later he got arrested as being one of you know but i was like they were asking him all these questions as if he was a reporter on the scene and i'm like wait no that that guy's like not a reporter like he was there but he was trying to pass himself off as a reporter because i don't think he was thinking i think he was like oh i'm gonna be on cnn i'm like dude you you were there you're gonna be in jail (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly you're you're gonna come knocking on your door as officials yeah so people people i think record without either taking in the whole situation you know like if you if you miss 10 minutes of an altercation or a situation you only record a minute of it that can be sp- spun anyway um but also i think a lot of people are kind of just walking around waiting for somebody to like start yelling at them so they can be like "Ooh, look i i got a karen you know, attacking me today. Um, you know, I'm going to put it online. And that's, that's the biggest thing because at least for me, and obviously I know different races and cultures and just everything. When you look big picture, kind of what you're saying, don't, they don't take into the full context. If that makes sense that you can only base on like this footage that you may or may not see. Yes. For me, it's what, led to that whole the whole picture if that makes sense yeah yeah you need a you need a and that's the thing that's a that's kind of one of the biggest issues with our world now as we live in this quick fix digital age and so somebody can take a video and put it up on twitter and it goes viral before we even know the whole story and now a lot of people get their news on you know twitter and facebook and instagram because it's instant. Whereas with news stories, you know, they have to, you know, at least vet, you know, they have to vet their sources. And, but now that because of the 24 hour news cycles and so many networks, a lot of them are rushing to get stories on the air because obviously at some point, if 
Twitter takes over for the news, then why have the news? So, um, yeah, it's a, just the, the information and misinformation that's out there is is crazy. So, well, let's go ahead and switch over to Final Destination. I keep, now, I forget that movie. What what is that? What movie? What, 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 what is that <laughs> franchise? So, but we're glad to have Elena back. But hi, hey, welcome back. <laughs> welcome this side of the planet. So yeah. Technology for you, huh? Maybe your next yes. script will be about technology, Jeffrey. Uh, I, I have one <laughs> about oh, evil <yay>. technology. <laughs> uh, oh, it can be wonderful, but yes, it can be very evil. <laughs> so anyway, obviously you were, for those who aren't familiar with your story, you were working for New Line for, I believe it was 11 years um, I worked, yeah, 11 years in total, but I I was there for about seven, six and a half, seven years when I sold Final Destination. The first one? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then I stayed, <laughs> I sold it in 97. It came out in 2000. I was, I still stayed working at New Line just because I'm one of those people that if I love something, I just stick with it. And then after I sold the story for the sequel, um, <laughs> my boss was like, Jeffrey, I, lo- we love you so much here, but you're a real writer now, <laughs> like go out and go out in the world and be a writer. Um, and I lived in New York. So I was like, all right. So I, I, I quit new line and then I was going to stay in New York and write, but then, um, you know, nine 11 happened and I lived, you know, pretty close to the world trade center. So after that, I finally moved to Los Angeles to kind of do the Hollywood version of being a writer, <laughs> which yeah. is a whole different thing. Well, you know, that's interesting. Before I let Elena jump in with some questions here that I had to resend her. But <laughs> you, that's an interesting point of 9-11. And obviously, there is some issues with flying and the story and all. Because obviously, if the initial story was told post 9-11, that flight would have been canceled. Or yeah. What we would see in a real life. So do you think it was good when it came out? And did your opinion change of the ball you set rolling? Um, you know, it was, it, you know, I, th- I think it was, I'm glad it obviously came out pre nine 11. Um, because I wouldn't want anybody thinking that, you know, people, that's the thing. I, I worry too much about people thinking people always read stuff into your work. That's not there. And I wouldn't have wanted people to think that we were, taking the crash you know no you know that the the planes crashing into the world trade center is is inspiration but um but yeah you know when you we had a lot of freedoms with how we portrayed just the you know just going to the airport you know they you know there was a security checkpoint at one point in the script but it wasn't like invasive like it is now you know and there weren't you're right if somebody freaked out on a plane they would have canceled the flight um you know so um I mean, I'm glad it came out. It's there was there was something cool about it coming out in the year 2000. You know, like that. Just I don't know. It's 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 a it's it's one of the thousand years. You know, so um, that was kind of cool that it just came out in in 2000 because that's the you know I know everybody. I, I'm that's everybody was worried that like everything was going to crash then, and you know, some some people were like, oh, it's going to be at the end of the world. It's you know, it's. Or aliens are coming. Everybody was like fascinated with the year 2000 for some reason. Um, probably because again, it was the year 2000, but um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that I'm glad it came out when it did. I think mean, it was a perfect time for it. Also within the genre, um, you know, they were, it was kind of, you know, they were, people were looking for something a little new, something to kind of goose things up a little bit um, as far as, con- you know, a concept and t- the type of movie that was coming out. So I think, I think we hit at just the right time. Elena? Yeah, you definitely did, Jeffrey. Like, I have to say, like, it's one of my favorite franchises just because the idea is so unique. And you touched on it saying that life is so short. And that's kind of like, it's scary. Like, you don't even need all the blood blood and guts from it. It's literally scary yeah. enough that death has a plan and he's just going to get you <laughs> when, <I know. laughs> when your time is up. 
So yeah, as a writer, like I try to write my own scripts uh, with a lot of procrastination and <laughs> probably nowhere as like concentrated as as you would be. But um, I was just wondering You're what the writing process was like for it. Like, how did you come up with the idea, and how did you keep um, expanding from it? Um, I originally came up with the idea. I, I read an article about a woman who was taking a flight home, and her mother called her and said, don't take that flight. I have a bad feeling about it. So the woman changed her flight um, and the plane that she was supposed to be on ended up crashing. Uh, so that gave me the, that put the idea in my head, but I didn't have a story for it. Uh, but I was looking for an agent and, you know, they, they always had you like write a script for something that was already on television. So I used that idea of a premonition as a setup for an X-Files episode. And I wrote a spec X, X-Files episode uh, but before I sent it to the show, like my friends at Newline were like, this is a really good idea. You should, you know, turn it into a feature. So I'm glad I listened to them. And I'm, I just wrote it as an outline. And then I, I met with his producers, uh, Warren Zide and Craig Perry, and developed it with them. And at first they were all adults, you know, that had the permission and got off the plane. But Scream had come out and was a huge hit with one of my favorite movies. Um, but you know, teenagers were hot again. So they're like, make them teenagers. I'm like, okay. Um, and we just developed it, you know, and kept kind of going back to new line with it. And, you know, new line, they had a, you know, like any place they were like, we don't understand not, we just, we can't, we have a problem with the death thing. Like you can't see it. Like there's no monster to fight. There's no killer to fight. We're like, yeah, that's the whole point. So they were very leery about that. Um, until we said we were going to take Craig said he was going to take it to another studio. Um, and then they all of a sudden bought it really fast. Uh, but, and, um, yeah, so that they, they bought it really fast and, and, you know, and I'm really glad, you know, they got James Wong and Glenn Morgan, um, who worked on the X-Files, which was kind of karmic to come back or not come back, but got them to, to work on the film. And, you know, they really, uh, you know, they did, they did some really cool changes to, to what I had written and also fought to make sure that we didn't show death, which I think is the crucial thing that made it kind of have the legs it did because people can watch that movie and it doesn't matter, you know, if you're religious or not, or what your background is like, since we don't show any definitive version of death, we just make it a, a force that's out there. Then everybody can be afraid of it <laughs> and they can put, put their own belief system onto that. So I think that's what made it kind of successful kind of universally. And uh, out of the all the other ones, the ones that um, it's like you did, you wrote the characters for it, uh, including those. Do you have a favorite character, or do you have, do you have a favorite of the whole franchise? Um, I think I I I do. You know, Alex. I I do like Alex in the the original because he, you know, when I wrote that first movie, I just you know I wanted to kind of work against, you know, some of the tropes out there, and so we're used to having final girls in, in horror films and we have very few final guys in horror films. So, uh, you know, I, I was really excited to, to create that character. Um, and I think Devin Sala did an amazing job playing him. Um, I mean, I, I love you. You learn to love all your stuff at some point, you know, not that everything turns out amazing, but you know, you put so much hard work into it as a writer and then there's so much work that goes into it from everybody else involved. I mean, it takes years to make a movie. It takes, you know, hundreds of people, sometimes thousands, you know, all working. And, and so at the end of the day to get a movie made and out there is a miracle. So you have to be grateful when that happens. But I think Alex is just because he's, you know, he, he's my final guy, you know, like, so I have a special place in my heart for him. Um, and it's funny. Cause I love the second movie. Um, I, I love the first one, but I, the second movie to me did all the stuff a sequel supposed to do, which is, you know, we didn't just retell the same story. We kind of expanded the mythology, um, brought back, you know, an original character. Um, you know, I, I intentionally set it up where we're following these teenagers going on spring break. So you're like, Oh, it's going to be another teenage final destination. And then I kill them all except for AJ. Cook. <laughs> um, so, you know, I got to do a lot of fun stuff and, and, you know, obviously t having Tony Todd in any project you work on is, is just a blessing. I mean, he's an icon. So, you know, to, to have him back um, with more screen time um, was just <laughs> awesome. So uh, I think the second movie is definitely my favorite of the, 
of the franchise. Um, you know, the first one again is very special too. And I, and I love the fifth, I think the fifth one, because there comes a point when people are making franchises where, you know, and the one thing I will say that, you know, Craig Perry, the producer always works hard to make sure that it does the movies are quality. So they don't feel like it's just like, Oh, we're just turning another one out to make some money. Um, but I think with the fifth one, we, it really felt like they were making that one specifically for the fans after, after three and four came out, you know, it felt like it was made for the fans. Like we got more Tony Todd. Um, we got more, you know, the, we got a completely new spin on how to stop things. So it was kind of felt very fresh. And then the kind of twist ending, which like, we shouldn't spoil, I guess, in case there's somebody <laughs> out there listening that hasn't watched it. I thought it was brilliant. So, um, yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I love the, the whole franchise. I mean, I'm very grateful for the whole, the whole franchise. It's as a horror fan growing up, it's just nice to, you know, know that something that you created has, you know, you know, I, I hear people on the streets every once in a while being like, Oh, that was a final destination moment. And I just kind of laugh you know, to myself. Um, <laughs> Cause it's like, that's so cool. I was just going to say about the second one, Jonathan. Uh, we don't have big, huge freeways like you guys have in America. So that scene always sticks out to me with the, the truck and the log. Yeah. Like, that's so, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, but, uh, that's growing up in Kentucky. Like I was flying <laughs> home. To, I was flying home to Kentucky when I read that article for the first film. And then I was driving um, home in Kentucky um, and, and got behind a log truck. And then I pulled over and then I realized that's our opening. Like, cause I had originally had it be a hotel fire like the kids were going to spring break and they stopped at a hotel and craig you know always in a, in a very good way was like pushing he's like no we need something 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 better jeffrey dig deeper and then when i when i called him about the log truck i was like freaking out because i pulled off the street and i called him and um, he's like that's it <laughs> i was like yeah <laughs> so that's my i think that's my favorite that's definitely my favorite opening but i and also that that's because of David Ellis, the director as well, because he had a background in, in stunts. Um, and so he knew how to direct and set up action scenes. And I just think, I think that's one of the best pileup scenes I've seen. Like, I just love that opening. But speaking of that creativity, I got to ask, because I, I loved how the, this was incorporated being a history major. Mm -hmm. uh, Obviously, especially in one and two that I can recall, there were many props that contained references to either assassinated presidents or almost assassinated presidents. Were you a fan of history and wanting to incorporate some of that stuff? Um, actually, that stuff wasn't wasn't in my script. So that was that was definitely something that I think uh, James Wong and Glenn Morgan set up because i also know they named a lot of the you know changed the names of a lot of the characters um to match famous horror directors um like val luton and um so uh and todd browning so they you know that's the great thing when a director comes on a project is they kind of filter stuff through their their vision what they see and then you know they can either put stuff in the script you know like dialogue in the script or they can add music or they can add props in the background that kind of reinforce the themes that they're trying to get across. Um, and they're nice little Easter eggs for the fans. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, again, I give all props to uh, Glenn and James or James and Glenn for that, you know, because that was definitely part of their vision on um, bringing the script to life. But speaking of that, how big are you in terms of mentoring people? Because for those who may or may not be, aware of James or Jeffrey's story here, he was mentored because of a script he tried to write or he wrote it, but I don't know where what happened with it with Nightmare on Elm Street. And he sent it to Bob Shea and over the years, Bob Shea and his secretary ended up or assistant helped Jeffrey get an internship with New Line and they built a relationship. So how important is it for you to try to mentor either younger writers or actors or, you know, just people within the industry? 
No, it's very important. I mean, I, I take every, I mean, you know, I'm very grateful, you know, for, for Bob and his assistant, Joy Mann, who, yeah, when I was a 14 year old kid in Kentucky, when I, when I wrote them and, you know, they would just send me scripts um, and sometimes movie posters, you know, it was great. You know, it kept me very inspired um, as I was finishing up school in Kentucky when I finally went to New York. So, you know, I think, you know, giving back is always important. I mean, I, I spent a lot of times like speaking, you know, at schools or, you know, doing, especially during COVID, I've been doing a lot of, you know, I have a zoom, I'm doing a zoom class interview Friday at eight o'clock. Good Lord. Eight o'clock in the morning. Um, that's fine. I'll be good. Um, so it's, it's very important for me. Um, the thing that I've noticed it is different, you know, cause when I was growing up, like, well, first of all, you know, Bob Shea had a company, um, and lots of employees, it was a lot easier for him to like, you know, have somebody like read my stuff and things like that. Um, you know, I'm kind of a one man show right now, you know, or, you know, my, I work from home. And so I, I definitely help as much as I can, but I usually, you know, I, I've done a lot of, um, like online, you know, like, um, I'm blanking on the name of the website now. Um, oh, I can't even remember it. I'm so embarrassed. Um, but I've done a lot of like web series that you can find online for free, you know, just giving advice on the screenwriting and, and um, you know, I always just make myself available whenever I can, if anybody ever wants to do an interview or again, ask me to speak to classes and things like that. I mean, it's hard for me, you know, cause I do, you know, obviously I get a lot of people hitting me up all the time, wanting me to read their scripts. And unfortunately because of fears of lawsuits, um, you know, I can't really read stuff unless, unless it comes from a, an agent and it has to go through my agent. Um, so I can't really just read material because, you know, there's so many, there's so many out there and I, and I tell people there's almost this unneeded worry that people are going to rip off your ideas. I mean, there are so many people on this planet that the idea that you have something original, there are no original stories, to be honest. It's always about what you do with it. And I always use the example of Final Destination. Like after I saw, because I worked at New Line for a long time, but after I sold the script and I moved out to LA, I was at a party once and one of my friends was kind of drunk. And so I was like, tell Jeffrey the story. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And she's like, tell Jeff the story. And so he's like, I, you know, the story was, I found out like he had actually written a script that had the same concept as Final Destination, but he wrote it as a comedy. So this guy had a premonition cheated death but death was like a screw up and was trying to kept trying to kill him and some other people but kept messing it up and he had submitted its new line probably about six months after they bought my story but before they announced it so they were like oh man we're you know we we basically bought the same concept but a horror version and i always have to remind myself like thank god that they got that six months before that you know they got mine six months before because if that script had come through like a week before they bought my version, that writer would have thought, Oh, Jeffrey worked at that studio. He stole my story. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, so stuff like that happens all the time in this business. So that's, that's why people are very leery to read a script because it, you know, or can't read scripts that are not submitted through agents is because it doesn't matter how many times you promise and <laughs> on your firstborn that you, I would never sue. Um, somebody's going to come up and say you stole their idea. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's based on, if you're, if you adapt a book, somebody will come out and be like, you stole my idea. I'm like, I adapted this book. Okay. <laughs> it's like, so, but that, that's kind of a message I like to let people know. It's like, it's, I've only, and I've been in the business for like 30 odd years and I've only known one person who actually had his script stolen. Um, and he sued and won, but I've, I pretty much every writer I know in this town, every producer I know, and every production company I know, has probably been like sued or threatened by hundreds of writers going, "You stole not that idea from me," you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, because people don't realize, it's like, you know, every idea, somebody's thinking about an idea that you have. It's just again, it's how you put it out there in the world. Yeah. You know, like your creative voice makes your work different. And I don't claim to be an expert, Jeffrey, but I do have 
somebody's script. There's a fan of the show that sent me something and they're going mm-hmm. through the process of, you know, sending it off to the appropriate people and, you know, all that, that whole song and dance. And I think it's interesting for being a layman's person reading this script, mm-hmm. but speaking of what the threatening of lawsuits and all that other bullshit, is it with the process? Cause obviously I would know when you send it through your agent to whoever it's going to, do you trademark that or copyright it? How has that um, worked to protect you? Yeah. You always copyright. Um, I know they always say you can do like the register with the writer's guild or postmark it to yourself, which actually that if that does work because a government stamp is an official notice, but it's better to copyright it with a copyright office. Cause you can do that online. And the reason it is, is because the copyright is a government document. So if you're ever sued in a court of law, like that has the most standing over like, oh, it, you can say you registered with the Writers Guild, but somebody could literally take your script that you registered with the Writers Guild and copyright it. And then they would own it because they got the copyright on it. So mm-hmm. you should always copyright your script first before you send it out. And I just, you know, as a general piece of advice, I always tell people to um, keep an email trail you know like when when you send a script to somebody be like hey per our conversation here's my script about this and then have that person say thank you so that you just have like a communication back and forth um that shows that you you know that this person asked to see your script yeah the copyright is is more important i mean i know people like to you know they'll say oh just register your script with the guild or mail it to yourself but um if you're really serious, you should, you should copyright it. And it's, I think it's like $45 um, and you can do it online um, at the copyright. Um, I think it's uscopyright.gov. Um, so you can upload your script there and pay with a credit card and copyright your script. So that's, and it's a beautiful thing. Double yeah. whammy. Cause you also, uh, you also have the, not only a copyright, but you have the credit card receipt. Yes. The purchase. Yeah. And because the copyright is a government organization, if you ever have to go to court, um, the copyright holds up. That they, supersedes anything. So, how dare they? But that's a whole other issue with All government, issues. and we can spend three hours talking on that. But you know, it's interesting. We were talking about writing and everything, most of the conversation, and you. Uh, I heard in other locations aren't really a fan of writing for yourself because most people don't realize that you have acted some in your career, but obviously everything's taken off behind the scenes. So why aren't you a fan of writing for yourself? You know what? I, I, it's, it's hard for me to step outside of myself um, to see what kind of, role I would be good, like really good in. Like, you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm 51, but I don't look it, which is great, but it's hard to, you know, like I don't necessarily look like a typical dad in a movie. Um you, you know, if you especially if I shave, if I let my stubble grow out, it gets gray. I look a little older. But mm-hmm. if I shave, I you know, I would not if if you know, I would not look like somebody's dad if, if they're in there unless they're kids. And so, you know, I, I've got to do some little acting, like playing a doctor and some stuff like that. So I do plan on writing a better role for myself in something coming up. But for me, it's always about writing the best script. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be a matter of the right project coming along where I'm like, okay, this, I would be really good in this role. So I'm going to write it for myself. Going with that route, if you were to write for yourself, Mm-hmm. What would you go with uh, at this current stage that you're at in your life? You know what? I I love doing comedy, actually. So um, I think I'd probably write a comedic, you know, I'd be like the comedic, you know, Deputy Doofy or something in a slasher movie or a horror movie. You know, I'd be like, <laughs> that's what I think I would. That's where I have a lot of fun is doing comedy. You know, it's funny because I've been going back and forth with uh, Felicia Rose mm-hmm. and she just recently did something 
online for a Florida appearance with the guy who played Deputy Dewey, and he was also in Victor Crowley. And yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. so I did. As soon as you said that, I thought of that. You know, little, oh, that's so funny. That little Zoom uh, skit they did together. So it was pretty good. Yeah. As far as writing's concerned, as well, what kind of specific notes do you like to provide in terms of casting, or is it I sell a script and you guys do as you wish? I mean, it, it's usually a mixture. It depends on how it goes. Like if you, if you sell a script to a studio, obviously it's see ya. <laughs> um, you know, if I'm producing a project, I have definitely have more say in, in it. And you know, directing, you know. I just started directing, but you know, going forward with directing, I'll definitely have a lot more um, input into who's who's going to be in the film. So um, that's good for me as a writer and a director, is, is because you know I I know that I like to be surprised. Like you may have somebody in your head for a role, but an actor or an actress can come in and completely bring a different take to the character that you're like, oh, I didn't think about that, but that would be really interesting. So I find the whole auditioning process. It's exciting for me. I know it's excruciating for talent because, you know, only one person ends up with the role and you can end up auditioning hundreds of people, you know, for every role. And so it, you're trying to get the best person for the role, but also mix and match them with other characters and other actors and actresses. And, you know, so there's a lot of mental gymnastics you have to do when you're putting together a cast because you don't want everybody to look alike. You know, you don't want them all to have the same kind of personalities. Um, you know, there's just a lot that goes, you want to make sure the couples have chemistry. Um, so there's a lot of. So many little nuances. People don't think yeah. And then you'll cast somebody as part of a couple and then you'll cast the other partner. And then the first person you cast will get something else and have to drop out. And then you'll have to try to find somebody new who either matches with that person that you've already cast, which is a whole, you know, it's a, it's a lot of, um, and sometimes you just end up where it's like, we're shooting in a week. We just need to cast somebody. <laughs> so, <laughs> One of those two. Well, yeah. you wrote Don't Look Back, correct? Yeah. So that must have been a little easier for you to put the casting and such together. It was easier, um, but it was weird because, you know, we, we originally had it set up at a company, you know, with a $5 million budget. So we had a lot more um access to certain actors that I really wanted and actresses I really wanted uh, for the movie. Um, once we decided to go indie, you know, we had to go non-union. So then that kind of, you know, changed the people that we were looking at. But, you know, again, we ended up finding really talented people, um, which is great because, you know, there's a huge part of me that would rather give somebody new like Courtney Bell, who, you know, is the star of Don't Look Back and, and, all the reviews, the good, the bad, and the ugly, like they all point her out as being like amazing. So, you know, I'd much rather, you know, have my movie kind of introduce somebody like her to the world than, you know, just have a somebody who's already successful and famous get another role. Exactly. Well, have two more questions here for you that I was <laughs> thinking about. First off, I should say, try this in English. <laughs> You've had your hands within the entertainment and movie making process since a teenager, as we talk about. And with that previous answer, it made me think, what has been the biggest change in the business and the structure from your point of view since you've been involved? Um, it's, there have been a couple of seismic changes. I mean, the biggest one I saw happen um, probably in the 2000s, because when I started at New Line and, and, um, the early nineties, you know, like it was super creator based, um, you know, everybody that ran the studio loved movies and then it slowly started to turn it more business oriented. So then they started bringing in a lot of executives who didn't have movie experience, but had like business experience. So I saw the business change a lot to a more business model that wasn't as concerned with the creative um, you know, it's just more about protecting your bottom line and your stockholders. So that's why you see a lot of sequels and remakes and things based on books as people are making creative decisions based on what they think is going to be the safest bet as opposed to like taking creative chances. So that's one of the, the big shifts in the business that I think, you know, we all have to navigate or it just crushes you at some point, you know, um, that it is a business. Um, I think the other change that's been more 
positive is, you know, there aren't just like three networks and five major studios anymore. <laughs> uh, people can shoot films on their iPhone and get them up on YouTube and get, get noticed. And they can, there's a lot of smaller companies and there's a lot of streaming services. So there's a lot more opportunity out there, especially with the spread of the internet now, like somebody can post something online that goes viral and all of a sudden, you know, everybody in Hollywood knows who they are and it doesn't matter where you come from. So I think that the, the internet um, and the digital um, steps that we've taken have definitely opened opportunities to people around the world that normally wouldn't have opportunities. Back in the old days, it's like you had to go to New York or California, um, preferably California to break in the film business. And now, you know, you can do it from anywhere. That kind of goes back to what you were saying previously, as far as casting and such with, as far as like social media presence. So how many followers does this person have and all that bullshit? Yeah, like that, that never translate to, translates to box office. I mean, it, it may translate to like getting a brand out there, like if you're selling shoes or you're selling something like a product, but there's never been any, there's never been any film where they've cast like a big internet star in the film and that film has taken off because of this, you know, like there've been a lot of movies that you find on Amazon or Netflix where they cast like five, you know, five of the biggest Instagram stars or five of the biggest YouTube stars and those movies never broke through. So, you know, people, people, if, if they're watching you all the time on social media, for free <laughs> like they don't really gonna go pay they yeah they uh, they're not going to go pay 15 dollars to like go see you in a film like playing somebody that's not yourself because they're they fall in love with the person that they're following exactly not, yeah and you and me uh come from a even though you're a few years older come from a generation the biggest thing i would say that has changed is back in the day folks and i know we have a mixture of audience age-wise but there used to be things called VHSs and beta tapes. Yeah. And it went to laser discs and DVDs and now streaming services, as you uh, mentioned. So it's pretty cool, I think, to have and makes it easier to have multiple generations of fans of movies and or franchises. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, you know, that's one of the things that's interesting about, you know, being in the business is, is for me, it's all about longevity. You know, like, you know, there are people that have, you know, certainly had m way bigger careers than I have that, have, you know, that are still around, but they're, you know, there are so many people that, you know, had one film come out and then, you know, because the business changed, because things, you know, it, people like leave the business, um, you know, it's like, if this is something you want to do, you have to be in for a, in, in it for the long haul. And so that's why I think it's important that you learn the business side of of it because you have to roll with it like you can't stop progress so as much as people you know film lovers may be like oh you have to shoot on film digital sucks it doesn't matter people are shooting on digital so suck it up <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know it's funny and i like digital but i actually got a package and there's a few more i actually like physical hard copies of movies yeah me too. so during this pandemic best buy has been loving me with the oh. amount of money i've been spending absolutely i'm sure me too but my final question is, and I heard you mention this in another interview as well, that from time to time, you like to, well, most of the time, I should say, you like to put out good energy. But from time to time, you notice, as you put it, God nods, point it in your direction. Can you explain that? Yeah, and you know, and that's, a, that's a phrase that I actually heard from Oprah one time because. What did she ever do? I know who's Oprah. Um, she's everything. Um, you know, she said something one time that just kind of made sense to me. It's she said, you know, when you're kind of on your life path, like in you know, you know, we all do things to help ourselves. We do things to hurt ourselves. Um, you know, we do things that get in our own way. But when you're on your kind of true path, you'll just get like little signs from like the universe. You know that you're kind of just on the right path, like you're doing the right thing. And sometimes that can be something as simple as for me is like, you know, when I met Courtney, she told me that her lucky number was like 66. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, my zip code back home was 666, which is funny because we grew up in the Bible Belt. I can't believe it. But, um, 
I was like, yeah, that number's been in my life for a long time. And I started, started noticing a lot of 66s popping up, you know, just when I was starting to stress out about something and I'm like, am I doing the right thing here? You know, I would check my emails and it's like, I have 66 red emails or, you know what I'm saying? Or somebody would send me an, it's so, little. just these little, you know, like one time I started, I, you know, when Tamara first started, I was stressing about that. And, and I started training at this gym and I pulled up to the gym parking lot and the building behind it was like Tamara antiques or, you know, it was just like, I'd never seen that name anywhere. And I was like, right in the middle of like, am I doing the right thing? So for me, it's like, I call them God nods. Cause I think it's like, again, just, just God saying you're on the right track, you know, you or know, the universe if you want to, you know, if you don't believe yeah. in God, that's fine. I think it's just, you know, we're all, we're all made from the same energy and matter and we're all connected, you know, through even just science, you know, so yeah, I'm not the most religious person on the planet, but obviously I think there's something, I don't know what it is. I'm not smart enough to know what it is. There's something bigger than us. Yeah. Whether it be a God or, again, we can have that philosophical conversation for hours, but yeah. 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 But there's obviously something higher than us, I would say. Yeah. It's, yeah. I just I, don't know what that is. That's what I think God is. You know, I don't think God is like the, what we've been taught is the old man in the sky that's like, pulling all the strings and judging and doing all this stuff. It's just, you know, I think, that, you know, there, there is something bigger than just each of us as individuals. It's something again, what, you know, again, we, we all sprang from the same big bang, you know, that spark of life that created everything. Like we're all, we're all just connected through that just on a scientific level. So. Um, and just don't get me going on a George Carlin bit about God and, Oh. The man in the sky and oh know. i see yeah I, i've seen that that's hysterical yeah, yeah <laughs> i can pretty much do that verbatim but let's not go there but <laughs> if folks want to see all about jeffrey reddick but also take a look at don't look back what's the best spots they can check out um you know uh they can follow me on twitter at jeffrey a reddick um i'm on instagram but i don't use it very often um so Twitter is the best way to really follow me and don't look back is available, you know, at Best Buy it's on DVD and Blu-ray, or you can, you can watch it on all the streaming services, Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, Voodoo. So um, yeah, uh, really excited for people to check it out. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Of course. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, we'll do this again. Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts, there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting now that's what I call depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars. Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend whilst in Sail Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub.
or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shot suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hey campers, this is Ari Lee, the first Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Jason never dies. 